0: Good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. Uh, my name is CJ, I'm one of the pastors here if I haven't had a chance to meet you. And uh, some of you might be too young for this, but one of my favorite movies is the movie Nodding Hill. I don't know if you've ever seen it with Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant. And it's this uh, really entertaining romantic comedy in which Hugh Grant plays a lowly bookstore clerk who meets Julia Roberts, who is a super famous movie star, when she comes into his bookstore one day. And so they enter into sort of this endearingly awkward love story where Hugh Grant the whole time is really struggling to reconcile his mediocrity with her fame. And so uh, there's this scene toward the end where he's telling Julia Roberts about all about how amazing she is and how, how out of reach she is for a guy like him. And she this is her reply, and it's so good. She says, I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. And it's just this really like endearing moment. Um, and the, the words that she says and the way that she says them are so human and so vulnerable. I think it captures what is true about every single one of us. Strip away all of our accolade, our pedigree, whatever that is. And all of us are just boys and girls asking someone to love us. Love is one of the most basic forms of human need there is. It's essential to human flourishing. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, defines love in part as something he calls need love. He says this, he says, we are born helpless. As soon as we are fully conscious, we discover loneliness. We need others physically, emotionally intellectually we need them if we are to know anything even ourselves our humanity requires love as essential to our surviving and flourishing but the question is like what does that mean what what kind of love are we talking about what specifically do we need love is such an ambiguous term it's used uh so widely for so many purposes um, Tim Keller in his book, the meaning of marriage really hones in on what love is and gives what I think is a great framework to explain that the type of love we need. And he says this, he says to be loved, but not known is comforting, but superficial to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Keller is describing a desire for love, that is both the love of the heart and a love of the will, right? We we don't just want people to feel love towards us without a full knowledge of who we are. We long for a volitional love that transcends immediate affection. And so Keller's right when he says, the most resilient people you will ever meet are those who are both fully known and fully loved and who wholeheartedly understand, believe and accept that reality about themselves and live inside that reality. In this text this morning in 1 John 4, God lays claim to this kind of love. He says, heart love and volitional love come from me. He says, I made love. I define love. Your desire to be fully known and fully loved finds its perfect fulfillment in me. In other words, I know you the best and I love you the most. Do we believe that? Do we recognize God as the creator and definer? of love? Or do we instead settle for a love that is far less than what he offers? That's the question I want to try and answer together this morning. Let me pray for us as we jump in. God, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning with your church. Uh, God, I'm thankful for all of my brothers and sisters that I'm seeing here on the screen. I love them. I'm thankful for them. Thank you that I get to do life in this community. Um, God, it, it's painful not to see them in person, see their faces, it's, in pain, it's painful not to embrace them. Um, God, it's, it's painful that our ability to love each other right now feels so limited. How, how can we love each other through a screen? Um, and yet here we are filled with the Spirit. Um, we're, we're all over the country right now and yet we're here present with you Celebrating you, worshiping you. And so, um, God, I just want to thank you for your volitional love for us. And I just pray that we would be increasingly a community that is filled with your love, expresses your love. Uh, Be with us this morning as we open your scriptures. Holy Spirit, uh, move in power. Uh, Use me to speak uh, to each heart that's here. We love you and thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning marks the fourth and final Sunday of Advent. Uh, And If you're newer to the historical church calendar, the Latin word adventus just means coming or arrival. So during Advent, we take on a waiting posture, like Israel, who were exiled from Jerusalem, hoping for a Messiah to come and rescue them from slavery and bring them home from exile, We, too, await Jesus' second coming. We, too, are exiled. We are citizens of Christ's kingdom, foreigners on the earth waiting for Christ to come. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this about Advent. He says, The celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. As we await Christ's return, we need renewed faith. That's what we're going to preach on, faith and peace and joy and love. We need renewed faith. We need comforting peace. We need everlasting joy and, above all else, the deep love of God. And so if you have your Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. I love the Apostle John so much, and I can't think of any, anyone better besides Jesus himself to tell us about love. Remember that John was not only one of, the, one of the 12 disciples. He was one of Jesus' closest friends. He was part of that inner three circle with Peter and James. And Jesus, in the Gospels, referred to John in a way that no other human being in history has ever been referred to. When Jesus called John his beloved in John chapter 21, verse 20. Remember that? The, he, called, he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus called Beloved. Fourth century theologian um, Jerome tells us in speaking about John and kind of the end of his life in, in, in Ephesus, says that when the aged apostle John became so weak that he could no longer preach, he used to be carried into the congregation at Ephesus and content himself with a word of exhortation. Little children, he would always say, love one another. And when his hearers grew tired of this message and asked him why he so frequently repeated it, he responded, because it is the Lord's command. And if this is all you do, it is enough. Okay, so we're going to hear from John. And John is a love expert. And in 1 John 4, he's going to kind of go on this poetic writing spree all about love. Let's pick it up in verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. So the first thing that John wants us to know is that God himself defines love. This is beautifully hyperbolic. John is saying that love is so essential to God's character that you could say that love itself is synonymous with who God is. St. Augustine said, he who is filled with love is filled with God himself. Now, the love of God is superior to any love you will ever find because it is securely embedded in Nature. It's not just a behavior or an act of God, it's essential to his nature. If God didn't love you, he would cease to be who he is. If his love for you doesn't exist, then he doesn't exist. And he does exist even if you deny his existence. Because if you experience any kind of love in this world, you are catching glimpses of God. All love is marked with his fingerprints. You can't will him out of existence because his essence is not dependent on our belief, which I think makes God's love even more profound and more beautiful. He loves even those who call him their enemy, which is why Jesus commands us to love our enemies, because that is what God is like. It is the essence of who he is. A God who defines love, loving even those who would deny his existence, is a God superior to any other God you can describe to me. Would you consider then, if that's true, that if you are in any way this morning devoid of love, it is because you are devoid of God himself that anyone who denies God's existence does so at the cost of experiencing his love. If you will him out of existence, you will out the existence of his love. Here's the good news. Even if that's you, he goes on loving you. Even if you hate God, even if you don't believe in God, he continues to love you even in that state. Now, when John is writing this, there are two main words in the Greek language that he has to choose from for love. He would either use the word phileo or the word agape. Now phileo love is more like the love we see and talk about pretty regularly. Uh, It's in songs, in films, literature. It's a love of the heart. It's based primarily in emotion. It's usually either a romantic type of love or a love that describes the affection of close friends. G, uh, John uses the word phileo in his gospel in John chapter 11 verse 3 in the story where Martha and Mary send word to Jesus to tell him that their brother Lazarus is sick and dying. They say to Jesus, The one who you phileo, or love, is sick. So Jesus loves us with phileo love, heart love, the love of friendship, a love that is full of emotion. But when John wants to tell us about the kind of love that defines God's very nature, he doesn't use the word phileo, he uses the word agape. And he uses the word agape 30 times. In this single chapter in 1 John. Agape love is a love of the will. It is the fully known love that Tim Keller is talking about. Listen to what one word study says about agape love. This is how it describes agape love. It says biblical agape love is the love of choice. The love of serving with humility, the highest kind of love, the noblest kind of devotion, the love of the will and not motivated by superficial appearance, emotional attraction, or sentimental relationship. Agape chooses as an act of self-sacrifice to serve the recipient. This is the kind of love that God has for us the kind of love that defines his nature. I read an article this week. Um, I kinda like to, I, I'm like very amateur, but I kinda like to nerd out a little bit on like neuroscience, neurobiology. And so I read this article from Harvard Medical School called Love in the Brain. And they talked about what happens neurologically in the brain when someone is falling in love. And so the first thing that happens is there's a flood of chemicals that enter the reward center of our brain. And in this process there's an increase in cortisol, which is known as the stress hormone. And as cortisol goes up, serotonin goes down, and they say it leads to a combination of hope and terror, okay? This is where the the sort of poem and the, the, the flower where you pull the petals off and you're sort of like, they love me. They love me not. They, you know, he loves me. He loves me not. Um, this sort of infatuation where you're excited and at the same time sort of um, terrified. Okay. But the article goes on to say that there are other chemicals at work as a relationship moves away from this temporary type relationship and more into a long-term commitment. Um, In that process, oxytocin and vasopressin are chemicals that increasingly bond us to another person over time. And those, that set of chemicals, calm down the cortisol serotonin dynamic, bringing feelings of contentment, calmness, and security. Okay. Now this could be a stretch. Okay. But as I'm reading this, I'm thinking about phileo and agape love. I'm thinking about those two realities. Phileo love, love of the heart, is amazing, but possibly temporary and affected by circumstances. Agape love is a love of the will that lasts far beyond the initial phase of attraction. Could it be that God designed us to experience both, One in the immediate and another in the long term. Is it possible that that's how God has created us? Think about your most truly secure relationships. Are they not with those who maybe initially it was easy to enjoy that relationship, but these are people that over time have seen you at your worst and yet choose to love you in spite all of your shortcomings. When I think about my most intimate and deep relationships, I'm thinking about these kind of people, okay? I'm thinking about Renee and Dave and Maggie and Avery and Georgia and Mike and Emily and Anthony and many of you who have seen really frustrating parts of CJ, right? Um, if, you, if you don't know me very well and you already find me a little bit annoying, take time to get to know me even more and you will be very frustrated with me. Like, <laughs> I am difficult to love. You are difficult to love. But these people in my life deeply love me. They love me with agape love, the love of the will. It's volitional. It's covenantal. Now, agape love is not superior to phileo love, but both are required, Right? And in God, we have both. This gets at Keller's idea that we want to be both fully known and fully loved at the same time. In new relationships, I may feel loved but not known. This produces anxiety. Over time, as someone gets to know me and loves me despite my shortcomings, I feel increasingly secure in that relationship. God perfectly offers us both from the very beginning of our relationship with him. He is both smitten with us like a new mother is with her baby, but also willfully committed to us for the entirety of our lives, even though he knows we are going to willfully reject him and rebel against him every day of our lives. This is the love that you and I are desperate for that we can't find anywhere else. And yet... Instead of resting in in God's love for us, we go around chasing after one temporary love relationship after another, hoping to experience this deep form of agape love, but we never find it. Because in these superficial engagements, we are usually loved until we are known. And once we are known, we are ceased to be loved. Something or someone has surely broken your heart, and it is likely because they were unable to love you with a love of the will the way that only God can. Only God can get you out of this dynamic, which is why John will later say in first in John chapter four eighteen, perfect love casts out fear human love a love of the world, love in our culture, devoid of God is a love filled with anxiety. Only the love of God, perfect love of God will cast out fear. We chase other loves that break our hearts, but we also flip the order of the phrase, God is love, which John would absolutely not do. And many of our friends would do this. In San Francisco, they wouldn't say God is love. They would say, love is God. And when they say that, here's what they mean. They mean, number one, that love is superior to God. Okay? And they mean their definition of love. They have crafted a God in their own image. They've painted God into the corner of what, however they define love. But that's not what this says. This doesn't say that love defines God. This says that God defines love. The God of the Bible is loving, but not at the expense of his other attributes. God is, as we reflect on God's love, him being loving, let us not forget that God is also holy. God is also just. He demands justice for sin. I want to read some from R.C. Sproul. He reflects on this. He says, Our most fundamental inclination as fallen human creatures is to exchange the truth that God reveals about himself for a lie and to serve and worship the creature rather than the creator. In references, Romans 1 18 through 32. Sproul says, We commit idolatry every time we substitute a lesser concept for his glory. Whether that substitution takes the crass form of stone gods or the more sophisticated form of redefining God's character to suit our tastes. A God stripped of justice, of holiness, of sovereignty, and the rest is as much an idol as a statue of water stone. We must be careful not to substitute for the biblical God, a God who is exhausted in his character by the one attribute of love, especially as popular culture defines it. To allow God to be the one sole perfect definition of love within the confines of his other attributes is to swim upstream in our culture. Do you find yourself slipping into a kind of thinking that reverses this statement? It's easy for us in San Francisco to agree with San Franciscans about God being a loving God. But are we embarrassed or ashamed of God's holiness? of God's demands for righteousness and justice. We were talking about this this last week in our our O Antiphons group, where um, if you did O Antiphons this last week, we talked about like um, being willing to declare Christ as the king. Um, And it was intense. It's like, what if I went around San Francisco declaring Jesus as the king? I'm talking about like monarchy, I'm talking about uh, patriarchy, a male king, right? We must not forget that God's volitional agape love for us is most important when it comes to the reality of our sin. Our sin is the thing that requires that God love us with a love of the will, a volitional love. He has to choose to love us in spite of our sin, which is why God's love is most perfectly manifested in the person of Jesus Christ, which is what John is going to tell us next. Verse nine. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Okay. So how do we know what love is? Where is this kind of love? How does it get defined? Here's how it is. The that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So John tells us first that God is love. Then he tells us that Jesus is the perfect manifestation of God's love. Why is, Jesus, why is Jesus the perfect manifestation of God's love? Because of what he did, more than anything, because of what he did on the cross in the face of our sin. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What greater love of the will is there than one who goes to a cross of their own accord, subjecting themselves to To their own accusers. The incarnation of Christ, what we celebrate every year during Advent, puts actual skin on the willful love of the Father to mankind. How else can I be fully known by God if He's never walked a day in my shoes? But Jesus did. He knows every struggle, every weakness, every vulnerability, every abuse, every trauma, he knows all about what it's like to be a victim in this world. But not only that, he knows every selfish, self-serving, ugly, sinful thought, word, deed, or attitude of the heart you and I have ever had. He knows us better than anyone ever could, including ourselves, and yet he loves us with agape love. And how does Christ go to the cross? Willingly, volitionally. John chapter 10, verse 17 through 18. Jesus says this, For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And look what he says, No one takes it from me. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Tim Keller says this about the gospel and I just don't think it, this is just such a great way of framing the gospel. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe yet at this very same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That is the gospel. That is the, that is what the word good news means. That's good news. If you can find someone or something to worship that will deliver you this good of news, then I wouldn't fault you. But the gods we worship besides Jesus are not this good. Okay. They, they tell us that we're deeply flawed and that we need them. We need their product. We need their special knowledge. We need their expertise. But then when we fail to live up to whatever standard of perfection they have for us, they pummel us with shame, saying the reason that you aren't loved is because you are known as a failure. It's your fault I don't love you. That is the message of every other God besides Jesus. They require our volitional love, but give us none of their own. They only love us if we serve them and give them what they want. It is when we couldn't give God anything, when we were at our absolute worst, that God loved us the most willfully with volitional agape love. So listen, if you hear nothing else, like this is where I hate Zoom because like can't, you can't feel like my affection for you through the computer. If you hear nothing else this morning, brother and sister, hear this. God loves you. He loves you so much. He made you in his image. He knows you. He knows every hair on your head. He knows you're going out and you're coming in. He sees you. He sees your most precious and vulnerable parts. And he sees the parts of you that are so dark and so ugly and so full of hatred for yourself, for him, for others, and yet he still loves you. And he proved it. He proved that he loves you in the best way he possibly could through the incarnation, through his birth, through his perfectly lived life, through his unjust execution, through his resurrection back to life, through his ascension to heaven, and then even now, as we read in the New City Catechism earlier, his ongoing day-by-day, moment-by-moment intercession on your behalf to God the Father, the one who made possible Christ's death and resurrection by sending Jesus to the world to die for us. What would our lives be like if we could somehow believe this, believe that God loves us with this kind of love? How free would we be? How at rest would we be? How generous to give love to others would we be? There's a way to measure whether we have believed. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We are called to manifest Christ's love. It's our job to each other and to the world. Demonstrating that truly we have understood how much Christ loved us, what it cost him to love us. Notice this term throughout the passage this morning that John keeps using to address us as readers. You notice it? What does he call us? Beloved, which is the word agape. Why would John call us beloved? The title that he alone has been given by Christ. If I was John, I would make t-shirts that say beloved on them and I would wear them around and I would police anyone who ever referred to themselves as beloved. I'd cut them off at the pass and say, no, 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 only me. I, I alone have been called that. And actually, if you remember early in Jesus' ministry, that's what John was like. Do you remember him competing with the other disciples for Jesus' highest highest affection? Which one of us will sit at your right and your left in the kingdom? But something happened to John after he witnessed Jesus' death and his resurrection. He was transformed by the manifest love of Jesus so much that he now gives that term away freely to others. He gives it away. He gives it to us. That is our calling as well. Jesus never intended for his love to stop being manifested when he ascended to heaven. He wants us to have a human experience that mirrors as much as possible the experience of his own embodied presence. And that is through the church, the body of Christ. The body of Christ, the church, is how Christ's love continues to be manifested as if he himself was still here in the flesh. Now, Jesus' personality is way too big for any one of us to perfectly embody it. It requires all of us collectively. Isn't that brilliant? Isn't that genius of Christ? So that when you and I gather together and give ourselves to one another in interdependence, we experience the perfect manifestation of Christ's love. Which is why Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5, he says the goal of our instruction is love. It's the point of all of this. In John chapter 13 verses 34 through 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. No one should measure our church by our vision. Don't measure us by our programs. Don't measure us by our preaching. Don't measure us by our strategy for reaching the city. Don't measure us by our social media influence. Measure us by our love for God, our love for each other, and our love for others. Love is the most important measuring stick we have because Jesus himself says it is the goal of our instruction. And I man, I just want to encourage you um, and it's, I hesitate to do this sometimes because sometimes when I like compliment the church, it can feel self-serving. It's not, it's not intended to be self-serving. Like I think our church is a loving church. I think we're an imperfectly loving church. We have said from the beginning that we wanted citizens to be a place where you can be both fully known and fully loved. And I think people feel loved here. We've had lots of people move away um, God's called them away from the city, but express that they have felt incredibly loved by our church family. We've had people decide, uh, that they need to leave because of theological differences and ecclesiological differences, and yet have said, we felt loved at this church. We have people have had people fall away from the faith entirely and say, I don't even know that I'm a Christian anymore, but I still have felt so loved by this church. We have had people leave who didn't feel loved, but who we actually did love. But we loved them in a way that didn't fit their description of love. And so they were frustrated with us, even though they actually had been loved really well. We have had other people who have not felt loved, who we have had to repent to and say, we haven't loved you well. And we repent of that. And how can we How can we uh, reconcile with you and be restored in this relationship? Okay. We are a growing imperfect body that needs the grace of Christ. But I do want to encourage, I think that love is one of the greatest assets of this church. And I think that Paul would thank God for us in the same way that he did in Philippians chapter one. And that he would pray the same prayer he prayed for them when he said, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. What if love, the love of Christ, was as incarnate in San Francisco through Citizens Church as it was on the day of his birth 2,000 years ago? When Jesus was born, News of his birth spread everywhere, right? The shepherds dropped what they were doing and came running. The magi set out on a long journey to meet him at great danger to themselves. When, when people hear of the Messiah, when they hear of good news, they come. They want to know more about this Jesus. Would we be a church that is so known for our love, that people who would have otherwise nothing to do with God, nothing to do with Christianity, hear about our love and say, I'm kind of interested in that. Like, maybe I want to hang around. And maybe they come and they spend a couple years with us, because maybe it takes them that long to decide we're not crazy and to actually believe that this love is real. Great. Let that be so. Can we be that kind of church? I pray that we can. Let me ask the father to to help us with that this morning as we close. God, we just thank you for your word. God, I'm so humbled by it. I'm humbled that I get to spend time in my week studying your word and learning about it. And every time I do, I'm just filled with joy and gratitude. I thank you for your love, that your love is volitional towards us. That indeed, Lord, when we were at our very worst, sinning against you, rebelling against you, that is when you loved us the most and gave your life for us. And because we have that from you, Jesus, we now have the ability to be generous. And I just confess, Lord, that I can be very stingy withholding love from people. I can be very self-righteous and judgmental thinking that somehow I'm deserve, more deserving of your love than somebody else. And that is ugly sin, God, and I repent of that. I pray that you would increasingly change me into a more loving man, that that would be more and more people's experience of me, that as they are with me in my presence, that they would experience the love of Christ through me. Uh, Lord, I need, I need you to do that work. I pray you do that work in all of us. God, we love you and give you all glory This morning, it's in your name we pray, amen.